It's great to be together, and I'm very thankful you're here at this time of year to celebrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it and open it up to Matthew, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1. We've read a little bit of it already this morning, but I want to spend a little bit of time digging into it, just a few moments really, and I want to begin maybe first, this is a family-friendly service, and what that means is that uh, there are kids all around us in here, so if you're a kid, let me define that, if you're a 12 and under, how about that, Um, why don't you put your hand up for me, nice and high, 12 and under, let's see how many kids, come on, nice and high, okay, wow, that's awesome. Okay, I have a question for you. You can keep your hands up if this is for you, okay? How many of you are afraid of the dark? Don't be scared. It's okay. Yeah, me too. I'm with you. That's right. I'm not 12 or under, so it doesn't apply to me. That's fair. I remember, though, being a little kid, and, and I remember being um, afraid of the dark. And maybe it wasn't just being afraid of the dark. I'm not really sure what it was. But I remember as a little kid lying in my bed. I'd be, I'd be in bed. My parents would have tucked me in. And I'd lie there awake thinking about scary things. Of just maybe being alone. Thinking of the unknown. And sometimes I would lie there for what felt like forever. Working up the nerve to run down the hall and burst into my parents' room. And now I have the joy of being a parent on this side of this kind of equation and having my kids run down the hall and scare the daylights out of me, bursting into my room. There's something comforting about the presence of someone you love. When you're scared, maybe in the dark, just being around somebody who loves you, who can take care of you, that can provide that sort of comfort and security for you, it's incredibly helpful. And in the darkness and fears of our world, it's interesting that we do not run to God, but what we find out in the Christmas story is that just the opposite, while we're in the darkness, God actually runs to us. He comes to us while we're living in our fears We're living scared and anxious and worried about all of life, surrounded by darkness. God comes to us and He meets us in our darkness. And it's His presence in the midst of the darkness that is our greatest source of comfort and peace and security and hope. And that's what we see in our passage today in Matthew chapter 1. I want to just read it for you. And then I want to just give you a few thoughts. It says in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, 
the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. As we follow this story, I want to do so just with kind of three simple points. I want us to see the scandal, I want us to see the surprise, and then I want us to see the surrender. And I want to show you how this relates not only to Mary and Joseph, but how it relates to you and to me. First, the scandal, and here's the greater scandal, everyone is broken by sin. That's what this would have been, by the way, in their time. This would have been an absolute scandal. When you think of the nativity scene, I want you to to remember there's nothing sanitized in this particular nativity scene. This was scandalous. And I want you to think about what God chose to enter into in this very moment. How would he choose to show off his power and his glory, not in the Colosseum in Rome or the Parthenon in Greece? He chose Bethlehem, this little town that's named after bread. He chose to enter into the world as the child of a teenage girl and a man who worked with his hands. There's nothing pristine about this situation at all, and that's what verse 18 and and 19 really remind us of. It's interesting when you think about this situation, Mary and Joseph are betrothed, and that simply means that according to Jewish law, they were almost married. It's a little bit more than what we would consider an engagement. A betrothal period would last about a year long. It was a binding contract which could be broken only by death or divorce. The couple was not allowed during this period to live together under the same roof roof, or to be intimate until after the wedding ceremony. But they were already, in a sense, considered to be husband and wife. So imagine the day when Mary came back from visiting with her family. Joseph sees her and he recognizes instantly that something is different. Something's a little bit off. Something is wrong. She's pregnant. Now, pregnancy out of wedlock certainly can have a social stigma in our day, but it was nothing like the kind of social stigma experienced in the ancient world, especially in the Jewish community. Instantly, she would have been viewed as an adulteress, and according to Jewish law, she could have actually been stoned to death. She would have lived a very difficult life with great shame. And imagine Joseph in this situation, heartbroken. He was a just man, and he is legitimately a good guy. We see that in the Scriptures. He would have been humiliated, utterly shattered. Maybe he was angry. Maybe he felt deeply hurt by what he perceived as great sin, not just against him, but against God. Now, we know, because we're familiar with this story, that there was no sin. But in the moment, it doesn't look like that. This is earth-shattering news. It is absolutely scandalous. Not one of us, by the way, would have felt any different if we were in his shoes, and partly because we all know the pain and tragedy of sin. Every one of these individuals reflects the world around us and the heart within us. 
to one degree or another, every one of us has been damaged and done damage. Every one of us has sinned and been sinned against. And sin produces separation in our relationships with one another, but ultimately in our relationship with God. This is the context for Christmas. That is what Christ entered into, a context that was physically dirty, socially shameful, relationally isolating and painful, emotionally heavy, and from an earthly perspective, hopeless. But the message of Christmas is that God enters into the worst situations to bring peace and redemption. And not just then, but, but now, God specializes in entering into the broken situations, the hopeless situations, the messy situations, the dark situations. He, he's the God of the manger. And if the king of the world is born into a filthy manger in the context of a poor family, then there's no situation in your life that he won't step into. If he showed up in the manger, he can show up in your pain. If he showed up in a manger, he can show up in your doubts, in your fears, in your loss, and he can show up in your life. Maybe you're here today and you've actually missed God. You've missed him every Christmas season because you've been so busy looking around at your circumstances, the hard circumstances, the dirty circumstances, the painful circumstances that are, are real, but they dominate your mind. And you can't see past them to see Jesus. Maybe you're longing for God and he's nearer than you think. The great scandal of the world is that every single one of us is born into sin and has been broken by sin. We see it, we feel it, we know it. The question is what can be done about it and what we see next here is the surprise. In verse 20 through 23, Joseph gets some news. We're told that as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That The surprise here is this birth of a Savior. And from the beginning of Jesus' life, we are told who he is and why he came, who is this Jesus? That's the natural question then to ask. Well, first, notice this. He's a man. He is fully human. He's born as a human child, a baby in a manger. He is a descendant of King David, but he's not just a man. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He, he is God in the flesh. So, if you're thinking about this, maybe you're asking, well, what is God like? The Scriptures say, look to Jesus. How does God approach those who are hurting? Look to Jesus and watch how he deals with compassion. How does God heal those who have sinned? Look to Jesus and see his, his mercy and his forgiveness and his sacrifice for sinners. How does God deal with our honest questions? Look to Jesus and see that he is the pinnacle of both grace and truth. Jesus is eternally God, which means that his birth was not his beginning. 
And Jesus being fully God and fully man, that can be a difficult truth to try to grasp and wrap our minds around. I love what the early church father Augustine from North Africa said. He he captured this paradox when he, he said this. He said, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the lion, but also the lamb, the king who came as a servant, the master who washed feet. He is the lamb of God who is also the good shepherd. He is the great high priest, but also the sacrifice. He is the judge who puts himself in the place of the guilty. How remarkable that the Son of God became the Son of Man. Some of you may be hearing that today, and maybe you're thinking, man, man becoming, or God, excuse me, becoming a man, a virgin birth? Come on, come on. That, that's, that's not scientifically possible, okay? We all know that. But you see, that's exactly the point, that God can do the impossible. And while you might have a hard time believing that intellectually, I think that deep down inside you want to believe that, that there is a God who is above all of this who can do the the absolutely impossible. You want a God to do the impossible for you. It feels impossible maybe today to turn your life around, but God can do it. It feels impossible to get over something that happened in your life, but God can do it. It feels impossible to get the guilt and shame off your back, but God can do it. It feels impossible to find purpose that is not fleeting, but God can do it. It can feel impossible to simply listen, navigate, and live with the circumstances you find yourself in, but God, God can do it. He is the God of the impossible, but He's not simply a miracle worker. He's also a Messiah. We've seen who Jesus is, but we need to see what He came to do. Why did Jesus come? There's a rather obvious clue that's given in this passage. If you read all the way to verse 25, when when he's actually born, what you see is that two times the name of Jesus is emphasized. Now, again, kids in here, maybe I can ask for your help here. I want you on the count of three just to shout out your name, okay? Can you do that for me? Nice and loud. One, two, three. Okay, now, now on the count of three, shout out your parents' names, okay? One, two, three, go. I just like doing that because I love hearing little kids say their parents' actual names. It's fun. <laughs> now, here's another question for you kids, okay? Do you know what your name means? Okay. Some of you do. Some of you don't. And here's why. You know, in our culture, sometimes our names don't have any meaning. Maybe our parents chose them just because they liked the sound of them. Maybe they reminded them of somebody else, or maybe they were just a cool or unique name. But in biblical times, when, when, when parents were giving their children names, their names were associated with the identity of that person. In other words, the name told you something significant about that person. And when you understand what the name of Jesus means, maybe this will be helpful for you. It means God saves. Because this is the identity of Jesus. The Lord saves. It's exactly what he's come to do. It's built into his very name. Verse 21 tells us that you shall call his name Jesus. And here's why. Because he will save his people from their sins. 
He came to be with us. He came to give himself for us. And it's here that we see that though he was born in a cradle, he was always intending to go to a cross. I, uh, I was getting my hair cut this past week, and um, the young man who was cutting my hair, he, he told me that he loves this time of year. You know, he just loves the attitude. Everybody's just happier, generally speaking. Um, they should be. But he said, he said I, I love it, but I don't celebrate Christmas. And so as we got talking, you know, he's like, yeah, things get busy around Christmas. I bet they slow down for you, right? I said, actually, they don't. They kind of they ramp up for me. too. He's like, oh, well, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, it's always a fun one, by the way, when you get to throw that out there. <laughs> so he said, oh, that, that's interesting. I said, are you religious? He said, well, I say my five prayers a day. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, so you're Muslim. He said, yeah, I'm a Muslim. I'm like, okay, great. So we got into this this really great conversation as he's cutting my hair, which is dangerous, by the way. You don't want to offend somebody while they're cutting your hair, okay? It could turn out really bad. But as we talked, I said, tell me a little bit about your faith. Tell me a little bit about, about what you believe about God, you know, about, about how you can be made right with God. And his response to me was this, well, in our religion, Allah is a forgiving God. He forgives us. And we just have to, I said, well, how, how, how does that happen? He said, we just have to pray and, and ask God for forgiveness. We just have to repent and he forgives us. I said, okay, okay, that, that's fascinating. You know, he said, we're, we're a religion of, of um, compassion and forgiveness. I said, well, Christianity is too. So I said, can, can you help me understand something? How is it that your God can remain just and holy and yet compassionate and forgiving at the same time? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, well, do you believe that your God is just? He's holy, he's perfect, he's just. He said, yes, absolutely. So if he's holy and just, he must punish sin, right? Yes. But how then are you forgiven? He said, well, we, we ask. Well, so then what happens with your sin? And, and his response was this. He just said, some things are just a mystery. I said to him, I said, well, how do you know when you stand before God that you are actually going to be forgiven? And he said, well, he said, well, God's going to bring out his divine scales. And I said, well, I sure hope not. He said, what do you mean? I said, if he brings out any kind of scales, I said, my fear is this, they're only going to be weighted in one direction. Not just for me, but for everybody. And I said, here's, here's the problem with that, because even if you could do it, you know, even if you had a lot of good works, I still don't think you'd have enough. But the problem is this, that God is going to judge us not just on our works, he's going to judge us on all of our, our sinful thoughts and all of our sinful motivations. For every sinful thought, action, and every sinful motivation, everything that was not done for the glory of God and was done for any selfish purpose, that is going to be counted a sin before a holy and righteous God. And then here's the problem, then where do we all stand? He said, well, I guess we all stand as sinners. I said, so here's, here's the awesome thing. Christianity has a way to make sure that God stays both holy and righteous and he can at the same time be forgiving. And I said, that's actually what Christmas is all about. You see, what, what we know is this, that, that we would all stand before God as guilty sinners, but God loved us so much that he sent his own son into the world. God himself came for us. And because sin has to be paid for, because God is just, here's what God said he'd do. I'll pay for your sin. I'll take your place. I'll hang on a cross and I'll receive the penalty that you deserve for your sin. And then I said, but it gets even better than that. 
I said, and then Jesus, because he's God, he lives this perfect life, perfect righteousness. He turns around and he says this, not only will I take all of your sin and pay the full penalty for your sin, I will give you all of my perfect righteousness. I'll give it to your account. All you need to do is repent and believe in me. Believe that I'm God. Believe that I've died in your place. Believe that I rose from the grave. And he, and he looked at me. You know what he said? This is what he said. Beautiful. Beautiful. And then he kicked me out of his chair. He said, I got to cut somebody else's hair. But he gave me his number, and we're going to have coffee. And he wants to know more about what it means to find this kind of true forgiveness and true freedom from our sin. And when, you think, when we think of the cross, we need to ask, again, this question, why would God do this? And the answer is simple, it's love. But it's not a sentimental love, it's a sacrificial love. It's a, a costly love that reconciles us to God, and it fills us then with love for Him and love for others. But as I said, Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin, death, and Satan. And so while he saves us from our sins, listen, this is the best part. He saves us for his kingdom. Look at verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a quote directly from Isaiah chapter 7, 14, an Old Testament passage. It comes in the context of the hope of a Messiah. The Jewish people were hoping for a Messiah, an anointed king who would one day establish his kingdom and rule the earth with righteousness. God's people had been longing for the coming Messiah for thousands of years, longing for the renewal that this Messiah would bring, spiritual renewal, relational renewal, and one day full and complete cosmic renewal. He restores us in a way that then draws us into His work of restoration. He sets us on a mission to preach the good news, to serve those in need, to point people to the hope of cosmic renewal. God sends us into a world that is broken and hurting. And let's be honest, this world is crazy. There's political tension, there's family wounds, there's personal disappointment. And Christmas is not an escape from the pain and brokenness of the world, it's the answer to it. And we see that in this story. We see the scandal, we see the surprise, and finally, we see the surrender. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. You see, the grace of God evokes a response. And what was that for Joseph? He believed. He believed the message of who Jesus was, and what he came to do, and he actually then serves as a model for us. We too hear the good news, born is the king of Israel, the very one who will rule the world with grace and truth. And our response is to hear it, to receive it, and to build our lives upon it. And today, listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear God's grace for you, His undeserved love for you in Christ by sending His only Son for you, and you don't earn it or work for it. You receive it with open hands. 
John 1 says that to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And and in fact, if you're here today and and maybe you're hearing this message or you're wrestling with it for the first time, when you leave, let me encourage you. We have these little pamphlets at the back. It's called God's Christmas Gift to You. They're sitting on a back table right up by the doors. Just grab one of those on your way out if that's you. That'll help explain some of this in more detail. And I hope that'll be helpful for you and a blessing to you this Christmas. You see, the point of all of this is that salvation is available for all who surrender. There is no other way to be saved. And the the call of the Scriptures is to put your faith in Jesus today as Lord and Savior, to turn from your sins and to trust Him as your King, King of your life, to surrender all of you to Him because He gave all of Himself for you. I mean, how incredible is it that the king of the universe loves us so much that he was born as a baby? I mean, it's, it's almost unbelievable. But when you believe this one thing, it actually makes sense of everything. And Joseph believed, and his belief led to action. He did as the angels commanded him. That's because faith always produces action. Belief always leads to behavior. It produces true change and transformation in our lives. And for some of you, you believe the message of Christmas mentally, intellectually, but it hasn't actually changed you because you haven't believed it to the depth of your soul. You haven't truly surrendered your life to Jesus. Don't let Christmas be another holiday that simply passes you by. Let it be an awakening of the reality that Jesus is the light that has come down from heaven, that shines in the darkness of our world and the darkness of your own heart. We would not and we could not come to Him. So in love, He has come for us. He is, as Matthew says, Emmanuel, God with us. Surrender to Him today and live with Him forever.